Well, good morning. Let me invite you once again to open with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. We'll begin reading in just a moment at verse 35. And we continue this morning with what we began to see last week, which is we're now hearing after Jesus just worked this, this astonishing miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, we've been hearing him explain what that was saying about himself, uh, that he is our bread. He is the bread of life. And we limit ourselves this morning to four verses. We'll read verses 35 to 40, but we got as far as verse 36 last week, so we're looking especially at verses 37 to 40 this morning. Likely when we continue on in this chapter, we'll be able to take larger pieces than this of what he says, but we can't do that this morning. We have to limit ourselves here to these four verses, and the reason is that this small section has deep, deep implications that if we let it, could easily keep us busy for multiple weeks, not just one. Uh, this piece of four verses has been called, for good reason, one of the great passages of the New Testament. This is the sort of thing that we have before us this morning in God's Word that He would feed us with. And we're grateful. We'll read these verses aloud in just a moment. And I hope that as we read, that you might see why we are going to be finding, as we go through them, truths in two different categories, but very much related categories. And these are the categories that, we, that I would encourage you to be thinking in as you're hearing it read uh, before we begin to walk through them. Uh, looking for theological implications of what Jesus says here. There is deep truth about God in these verses revealed to us. Uh, and secondly, what we could call eschatological implications in these words. Because there's not just truth about God here. Because of who God is here, there's also truth about what our future holds as children of God. Uh, how the story of a child of God is going to end. We hear things about that in light of what Jesus says here. So listen for both of those as I read Listen to learn what God is for his people, what he is to his people, and what our future holds as his children because of that. And I pray that you'll see as we're hearing it and thinking in those ways, the way that these four verses contributes to the answer to his question. Uh, how is Jesus bread to us? How is he bread? I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. John 6, verses 35 to 40. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, 
but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. From the beginning here, in verse 37, we start to see truths about our God that directly impact the lives, the hopes, the expectations of his people. What is being spoken of chiefly here is the sovereignty of God in the rescue of his own people, in the rescue of his children. God's word speaks to that theme in many, many places. What's so potent about it in this particular passage is that Jesus here does not make general statements about God's sovereignty. He makes several specific statements that speak to it and speak to it from multiple angles. Look again at verse 30. As he begins here, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. We begin here looking at the picture of God that Jesus is holding out to us. The first question for us to ask is about the giving that he mentions. What is this giving? All that the Father gives to me. Think about that notion that he presents here and carry it in your mind as we look through these verses uh, that come after to follow the thought because he continues to develop this. Verse 37, those that the Father gives, who are they? Well, they are those who come to Christ, verse 37. Verse 39, who are they? They are those that are not lost by Christ. He says, I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. So when the Father gives to the Son in this way, these are those who are not lost by Christ. We have another explanation or description in verse 40 as well. They are those, verse 40, who look on the Son and believe in him. They are those who have eternal life. Can you tell from the way he is describing this that this act of being given to the Son by the Father is a salvific act on God's part? Now, we need to understand as well, though, that this is an act, the Father giving people to the Son, that is absolutely required if one is to be rescued, if one is to be saved. Only those whom the Father gives to the Son will find salvation and rescue. You can see the importance of what he's saying here further down as well in verse 44. You see that he says there, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This adds a significant element to what we are beginning to see in verse 37. Because not only does it repeat that Jesus will raise up on the last day, those who have come to him. But there in 44, it also clearly states that fallen mankind, without God's mercy and grace, lacks the ability to come to him. Fallen mankind cannot come to him apart from God's work. So we see first then that this giving to the Son is a thing that secures us. 
Just as if I give a gift to my child, that gift then belongs to him. So when we are given to Christ, we belong to Jesus Christ. We've seen as well that only those whom the Father has gifted to Christ are those who belong to Christ. In other words, I mean, just imagine this. There is no category in Scripture, is there, of a person who belongs to Christ whom the Father did not give to Christ. There is no such category. Now, what else do we see in the statement there in verse 37? He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Now, I'm not a math guy. Those who know me know that that's not my thing. But even I can do this uh, level of math work. I can think this way. For how many people will the Father make this gracious gesture? The Father will give them to the Son, and they will of their own uh, will and preference, they are, as the scriptures describe, the, their eyes are, are unblinded so that they see the beauty of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and they see it, and they say, mm, no, no thank you. No, I'm going to politely decline. What's the number? How many of them will do that? The number is zero, is the number. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. It's a statement of many things, but as much as anything else, it's a statement of the true beauty of God when beheld by his image bearers. This is what we've been made for, is to love and reflect and worship. And if he gives us eyes to see, there is nothing else more desirable, more desirable to us. So these whom the Father has given to the Son, all of whom will come to him, what is their fate then? What is the end game for them? Jesus says, and whoever comes to me, <clears throat> I will never cast out. Now, I would, I would have you add to that the words of verse 38. I think verse 38 is in there in order to supplement Jesus' point here at the end of 37. That's the purpose of Jesus saying that. It is this complete unity between the Father and Son. Right? The, the Father will never give me someone who I will cast out. We are completely together, unified in purpose, in our expression of love for this people. It's that unity that he speaks to in verse 38, isn't it? Where he reminds them, it's not the first time he said this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus repeats that point seven times in this chapter. It's quite obviously important to him in the point that he is making and the picture that he is making of his unity with his Father. Everyone the Father chooses to give to Christ is welcomed by Christ. In other words, their security eternally will never be in danger from him. Now, regarding our security, that is... A good, way to, a good way to think of it, I think, is that that's the other side of the coin from the security that Paul speaks about in Romans 8.38. Let me read this. You may well remember Paul's words here. He said, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor, do you remember that? Long list of, of possibilities, of circumstances. 
Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, I am convinced that none of those will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's what we have. Nothing outside of Christ can separate us from the love of God in Jesus. And here we learn that Jesus himself will never distance from us. What we have then is a group of people in verse 27 who are completely and eternally secure, safe in the hands of God. It couldn't be more clearly stated, I think, than it is in verse 39. He's just said, I have come to do the will of him who sent me, verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Do you see the point that he is making? The absolute necessity of the grace of God to be given to a sinful people but the absolute certainty that if God has given grace to a people, they are safe. If he moves to give a people, a sinful people, to his son, his son receives them, and no one is strong enough to take them from the Lord Jesus. As genuine faith is alive in me, and the scriptures speak of of judging a tree by its fruit. As I, as I see in myself and other believers who know me bear witness to the work of the Spirit in my life, uh, what I am finding in these scriptures is incredibly comforting. It's the absolute safety that God's people have in his arms. And furthermore, here's what we learn. I am not safe because of something about me or something that I can be credited with doing. That's not why I am safe. I am safe because the Father chose to give me to his Son. Think of what Blake just read for us this morning in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. God has blessed us with every possible spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. How? Verse 4 even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. See, he is explaining how all of this blessed, blessed kindness and mercy has come to a people. It's all through Jesus Christ. And Jesus here in our text this morning is explaining some of the workings of that. To be in Christ is to have been given to Christ by his Father. Now look again at verse 39 and consider this question. We're clearly quite safe in Jesus' opinion. How far along the way is that true for these people? Am I sure to trust in Christ, receive forgiveness of my sin, and then as I walk through my life in this world, I'll find myself in danger of being plucked from the number of God's people, of these children? What's the timing there? What's the length of this assurance of safety? And Jesus says, certainly not to that hypothetical. None will be lost to him, he says. 
all the way until our resurrection and glorification. Jesus says that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. One commentator describes it this way. He says, their assurance is based not on their feeble hold on Christ, but on his sure grip on them. That is the source of our assurance. And my friend, this comfort and confidence that our Lord is giving to us here this morning, it should be enormous in what it provides to you as you walk through your life. Doubtless there are as many different circumstances and trials uh, as there are people represented in this room. Isn't that the case? What we're doing is we're walking through life, we're walking through ups and downs in our path, but what we find is we are walking through those things with the very promise of our Lord himself, that he is going to raise you up with him in glory when he comes. And see the, the extent of his insistence on this sure end. We've seen it in verse 39. I lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. We see it again in verse 40. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44. And I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He seems to be wanting to emphasize that to us. Would you agree? And I think we can, we can conclude something from that emphasis, and that is that our glorification as his children, the, the future glorification that Jesus is describing is not only certain, but it's a high priority in God's plans for his people. It's not an afterthought. It's the climactic end of Jesus is accomplishing the mission that the Father has sent him to do. Verse 39, think of it this way. Verse 39 told us that our being raised in glory is a part of Christ doing the will of his Father, right? Which means that his obedience to his Father is not complete in your life until he has raised you in glory. That's a part of what God has given him to do in the lives of those that he's gifted him. And his work is not finished in us. His obedience to his father is not finished until he has brought it to its completion. I think about those things and it makes me wonder, could, could it be that that aspect of my existence, we're thinking into the future now, something that we've not yet experienced, but that is as good as done because Jesus has promised it to us, right? This is describing a day in your life, someday in the future. It will happen to you. Do you think that this might be an aspect of God's work that we would do well to think about more than we do? And the thought might go something like this. Oh, my. What big, exciting 
plans await me in the future at the hands of my Lord. The things that we will think about, and of course it would lead us to search the scriptures. We need more explanation. Some of this is a mystery, but he speaks about it. Paul writes about it. I want to know, what can I know right now about that day? It's the stuff of daydreams for us. It's the stuff of anticipation. It's the stuff of hope. And a true hope, a a hope that will not disappoint. I don't have to tell you, our, our labors in this life are extremely consequential, aren't they? They're important. They're commanded of us. They're significant. They're a part of God's divine plan. But we have to walk through those things with the sure knowledge that this age is coming toward a last day. He will raise us up on the last day. The day after that, uh, it's not that the day after that day doesn't exist and God closes the book and we all just cease existing. And he says, well, what a great story I just told. We will go on the, uh, forever glorified, praising God. It's the last day of this age. This, day, this age is coming to an end. And on that day, the work that Jesus is beginning to describe to those who hear him, on that day the work is done. And what awaits me is not unconsciousness. It's not annihilation. It is an existence of glory, as the scriptures would describe it. And an existence of glory together with the Lord and with his people. This is God's perfect and unstoppable intention for us. Which means if you are in Christ... If you know him as your Lord, if you have repented of sin and come to him for rescue, it's God's perfect and unstoppable intention for you. Now Jesus reiterates that again in verse 40, but he does it in a way that puts a bit more flesh onto the picture of how it actually plays out in our lives. Look at verse 40. Our Lord says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. He puts this being given to Christ by the Father into terms that, if you've been with us through the study of John's Gospel so far, should be increasingly familiar to you. He puts it in terms here of uh, looking on the Son, looking to Him, Remember Jesus' allusion in John 3, back to the serpent in the wilderness? It had to be lifted up, and whoever looked to it expectantly, trustingly, was saved. He likens that to himself. Looking on the Son and believing on the Son. This is how he describes, in this verse, being given to Christ by the Father. And that specification of what characterizes such a one, what it does for us is it puts the final piece of this passage into place. There is, there is safety and security that comes not from something I have done, but from something God has done, giving a people to the Son. And yet as that works out in space and time, what, is it, what does it appear? How, how, do we, how do we see it? How is it manifest? Well, sinners 
are convicted of sin, look to Christ, believe in him, and are saved. That's what happens. This is what we see. Now I would have us, now that that peace is in what we have seen, I would have us step back for the rest of our time and reflect on the whole passage here. And there are many ways we could do that. I would suggest two conclusions that we can draw, that we ought to draw, as we are reflecting on this. And I pray that these are conclusions that will stay with us this week as we go from here. One of them really has to do in particular with verse 40, but it encompasses everything that Christ has said here. And that is that, we could put it this way, the flip side of what verse 40 just told us is also true. Reread verse 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. The flip side of that is also true. We could put it as a question. What is it that unites those who will die in their sins? There are a number of circumstances and situations there, aren't there? What is it that unites those who will die in their sins? And what we see in verses 37 to 40 here is there are two answers to that question, and they are both correct. One accurate answer would be to say that what unites them is that the Father has not given them to the Son. His mercy has passed them over, which is a statement that we must, must, must be capable of saying Because if I cannot say that God's mercy could justly pass over a sinner, then I I have forgotten what the word mercy means. When we are talking about mercy, we are talking about something that is not owed. It is not deserved and it is not owed. What unites those who will die in their sin is that the Father has not given them to the Son. However, another accurate answer would be to say that what unites them is their refusal to come to the Son, to look on Him and believe. That unites them. In other words, what manifests in space and time, in the life of one whom a sinner, right, a rebel against God, whom the Father has chosen not to give to His Son, what happens in the life of that person? They live and die with a heart that voluntarily rejects Jesus' authority in their life. Rejects the notion that they need him and rejects the notion that they are that they are that he is sufficient for them. One man Leon Morris put it very well. He wrote this. He said, "People do not come to Christ because it seems a good idea to them. It never does seem a good idea to sinful people." Apart from a divine work in their souls, people remain more or less contentedly in their sins. The whole thing he said there was good. I really read it to you in particular because of that last thing that he said. More or less contentedly in their sins. I think that's very important. Some who refuse the offer of the gospel live lives of great happiness in their sin. And we know what that can look like, and we know the devastation that can come. But even to the end, in some cases, there is a stubborn insistence that I love this, 
and I'm going to defend it. Some live that way. Others don't. Others can appear on the surface to live very moral lives and even display wrestlings with their conscience, things like that. So there's a lot of potential disparity there. But all of them, in the final analysis, say of their sin that it's a thing that they can manage to be content with. In other words, it is not a thing that they come to the realization that they are unable to handle by themselves. If they couldn't handle it by themselves, then they would need to come to another to help them. But they can, so they don't. It's an experience worth describing out loud, I think, the the opposite of that. The experience that marks the beginning of the life of a Christian. Some of you young people in here may have wondered at times about this. I can remember as a child, uh, even a a, a teenager, when when the description, um, times when a description like this would have been helpful to me to hear, articulate it. What is it that happens when someone becomes a Christian? And we've talked a lot about spectrums. There's there's differences. But what happens, I, I think, fundamentally is that my knowledge of my sinful state and my increasing realization as I live longer, the horror that I cannot make myself better, lead me to consider the Bible's claim, here's the claim, that if I confess with my heart and my mouth that I trust Jesus Christ to rescue me, then he becomes my righteousness in the sight of God. I consider that claim that the Bible makes, and I say, yes, I will believe that. I will choose to rest on the finished work of Christ in my place. And so what that will mean then is I will consciously decide to stop resting on anything that I might do. That's a scary prospect to stop resting on that because it's a giving up of control, so it seems to me. But that decision is a decision of what the Bible calls faith. It is a decision, not not the world's faith, not a blind kind of faith. We've had whole lessons going through John about what what a a false faith is. This is perceiving the uh, offer that is given to me in the face of Jesus Christ and choosing to trust him. I trust him. When that happens, on that day, at that very moment, it is shown to the world that I am one that the Father has given to the Son. So this is, this is the first thing in terms of conclusions here. We must recognize not only what characterizes a Christian's life, but therefore what characterizes an unbeliever's life. It's important that we not be deluded about that about the answer to that question. The second conclusion that I would offer, based on these verses, is, I guess, a series of conclusions, I suppose. And the gist of them is this. It would be unhelpful, I think, and even purposefully vague of us, if we went through a passage like this and identified all that we have seen this morning, 
about who God is and how he works and did not acknowledge how the church has historically marked these things. In other words, Jesus is setting truths on display here that have at times been lost and recovered in the church. Truths that have been fought for, that have been bled over, that people have died for. And it does us well to understand that and to acknowledge it. Most specifically uh, and directly, I would say what we're seeing here that Jesus is expressing is so much a fundamental aspect of what was recovered in the Protestant Reformation by the Reformers. I mean, think of what we saw, how we saw this culminate in verse 40. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. This is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. This is what Jesus is teaching us. These are prime tenets of that particular tradition called the Reformed tradition or Reformation theology. And even within that label, we're going to talk about labels in a second because they can be so unhelpful. But in that label, there, is, there, there are divergences and varieties, but one thing that we must grab hold of here is the reality that we are saved by God's grace through faith. We have heard some things explicitly from Jesus' mouth this morning, like this. Uh, he loses exactly none of those given to him. Have you heard him say that? We've heard him explicitly say that there is none that the Father gives to the Son that do not come to him. Have you heard him say that this morning? The church has marked these truths that Jesus taught us with such names as the preservation of the saints, irresistible grace or effectual grace. In other words, these are truths that have been guarded vigorously historically by the church because of a particular understanding of salvation and to whom goes the credit. And I fully understand, and there's some good reason for this, that we can often really hesitate with labels. Those identifications come with labels at times. Um, and sometimes our hesitation has very good reason for it because of things we've seen in the past or um, such. And the labels, I bring it up simply to make this comment, the labels really are irrelevant, aren't they? I trust that you feel that way. I hope that you do. They can be time-saving devices. But... I bring them up here as hopefully a means of encouragement to a, particular, to a particular group of you that may be here, because this is very common. If your past has led you to be very raw and fearful and hesitant in the realm of labels, I would remind you and rejoice with you that the only question that matters is the question, what exactly is Jesus teaching us here about God? and about his ways. Is it really true that all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and that Jesus loses none of those whom the Father gives him? Is it really true? Those are the questions that we wrestle with and that we ask. We must be on our guard that the testimony of Scripture bends and shapes our conception of who God is and how he works, and not the other way around. 
And do you see how all of this that we have seen, the theological light, the eschatological light, the hope of the future, all of it shed light regarding Jesus as our bread, as the bread of life. So that as he's about to say, we must feast on him. Or we have no life. He is our everything. In all things from beginning to end, he is our provision. And thus in its own way, and I'll pray here in just a moment uh, before we begin to prepare for the Lord's Supper. But we're provided a segue here to participate together at the Lord's table. Because it's a table that similarly leads us to reflect on our provision as adopted sons and daughters of the King. So let's pray together to that end, thanking God and asking for his grace and mercy upon us. Heavenly Father, I do pray for us this morning, I pray for each of us here this morning, that you would convict us by your word. We thank you for the position that you put us in through these words of your son, a position of peace and of confidence, but also a position of utter dependence upon your good pleasure. May we never think of your mercy as a thing that can be demanded or a thing that is owed. And so when we find your mercy in your son, Father, cause us to give you all the glory for all eternity. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The bread and the cup that you have before you picture realities to us. They picture the body and blood of Christ given to us. We'll read in just a moment as Jesus says, This is my body given for you. And in our time going through John, we're now in the chapter that has our Lord shouting to a crowd, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. It's important that we understand this morning, he refers there not to this juice and this bread. He refers to the result of what we heard him say this morning. The result of our having been given to Christ. Him becoming our provision for life. He's describing the necessity of union with Christ. So that we would take our sustenance from him. Being connected to the life-giving vine. To use another metaphor that uh, Jesus will give to us. On the day that he instituted this supper for us. Jesus expressed thankfulness that he was able to share the Passover meal with his disciples for one last time. Do you remember that? As we begin this week of remembrance that will lead us to Resurrection Sunday next week, what we get to do this morning is to give thanks for our Passover lamb, the Passover lamb given for God's people, as Paul describes him in 1 Corinthians 5.7. This is a meal at which we give thanks for Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of his people. Let's begin to reflect on these truths and to thank our God for them as we sing together.
Supper is one of the things that sets us apart visibly as a people whose identity is found in our union with Jesus Christ. That is the reality that sets us apart from the rest of the world, our union with Jesus Christ. And because of the seriousness then of what this is representing, the Bible warns us to treat the table with care. We read in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 29, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. It's one of the warnings of Scripture, and we hear God's voice in his scriptures, and we take his warnings seriously. It's important that we understand what they warn us of, though. It is not the sinless that God means to share in his table, is it? Or none of us here would be partaking. Rather, it is those who share in it as an act of meditation upon Christ, as a moment of worship and repentance to Christ, and as a moment of resting in him as our righteousness. The Lord's table is a fellowship shared in only by those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their righteousness. Such a person will have confessed with their heart that Jesus is Lord. They will have confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. And will have borne testimony to that faith through baptism as is commanded. And thus will have entered the visible community of God's people, of those who know their sins to be covered by Jesus' blood. Those who have been given the desire to live for Christ, even as they know they do not do so perfectly. The communion table is for that community of God's gathered people. If you are here with us this morning and you know yourself to have not yet submitted to the Lordship of Christ as the one sacrifice God has provided for you, we are so glad that you are here to see this picture. 
and to hear his word proclaimed. What you need at this moment is not the sign. What you need is the substance that rests behind the sign. And so we would do what 2 Corinthians 5 commands us to do this morning. We would beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God through faith in his son. The offer stands today. Today is the day of salvation. Would the elders who are serving us please come forward?